0: the 11FS office in London for episode 113 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you Binance to land in the US, backed launches ever closer, and maximalists can't mean, apparently. Uh, All this and more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm your host, back in the hot seat, and today I'm joined by returning guest, the one and only Tim Swanson, head of market intelligence at Cleomatics. Swanny, how are you doing? Great. Great to be back and
1: good to see you. It's been a while. Uh, last time I saw you, you were engaged, I believe, and yeah. I did not
0: have a baby, so things have changed. Wow. Yeah. The world keeps on moving. never sleeps in our lives and never sleeps in the world of crypto, does it? I think we need to crack to the news. Yeah, no. The last time I saw you was randomly on a street near Moorgate Station in London. Uh, you were there. Uh, we just like, walked past each other. It was I like flogging blockchains on the corner or something Yeah, like you just need to stop flogging blockchain on street corners, man. It's getting
1: weird. <laughs> um, I, just, I just need to make a jacket. You know, these blockchains are just so long, they can't fit in one well, jacket. Well, you are a
0: PTK uh, classic bag holder, I do it believe. Yeah, my, my bags. I, I, it was very difficult to get them across the ocean. I <laughs> had to charge extra for those. So many bags. All right, let's get on with the news. Um, first story comes from the Wall Street Journal, and this is about a venture capital stalwart who is apparently fighting the U.S. crypto crackdown. This is, of course, about Andreessen Horowitz, or A16Z, um, putting up a fight against Washington's crypto crackdown. The firm hosted various regulatory agencies at a private conference where Mark Andreessen, uh, the famed investor slash human egg, um, compared crypto to the early internet. Um, The message back from Washington didn't seem to be particularly accommodating. According to people who attended... um, Christopher Giancarlo, who was the chairman of the CFTC until stepping down in July, uh, said he warned Andreessen Horowitz that regulation of crypto couldn't just be brushed aside. Some of the things you learned from uh, your older VCs, this won't transfer. Uh, Interesting. Uh, What were your thoughts on this one? You've seen, you you live in the West Coast. You see uh, and are around a a lot of different perspectives on this. Um, Where's your head at on whether VCs conversation with the regulators is being received. Actually, we just moved to the East Coast, so I had oh, to wear a you? different
1: hat. Yeah, th- things have changed here in the Swanson household. But yes, um, the, the coin lobbying world, I, get, I used to joke calling it big Bitcoin, but now they're you know, the, the, the VCs own more than just Bitcoin. So uh, big, big cyber coin, as it were, right? To, to make fun of that phrase. Um, you know, I guess it's inevitable. Uh, anyone with uh, a lot of assets are going to try and have influence over how those assets are regulated or whatever we want to call these things. Um, I, I, I think I I uh, there'd be a good guy to have on your show, actually. It's a guy named Lee Reiners. He was quoted in that article. He's over at Duke Law. And uh, I, I kind of side with him in the sense that, look, if you're if you're going to try to have influence on these regulators, like, be intellectually honest about it. You know, having closed-door sessions where you try to say, hey, hands off and stuff, like, we don't even know the exact, um, you know, things that took place or what had planned uh, to take place. And I'm not a huge fan of non-transparency for, for areas that... that People are always saying, we're going to have more transparency. I find yeah. it very ironic. Yeah, crypto impen- is known for its transparency. Yeah.
0: Um, I, everything's done out in public. Here's the Git repo. Go see the code for yourself. You can see everything on this permissionless decentralized blockchain. But by the way, here's a closed-door session. <laughs> there is some something there that's quite interesting. But of course, this doesn't represent everybody in the crypto community. This is the VC's um, part of that. And of course... Uh, Andreessen Horowitz specifically had hired Katie Horn, I believe, who was ex-DOJ, if I have that right. Um, so they're hiring some big names of ex-government employees who you know really know their stuff. Uh, and it kind of reminds me, if you go back to 96, there was, um, I think it was the Clinton administration released a series of policies around how uh, the uh, people in the publishing on the internet would not be treated as publishers. And that was seen as, I think, historically really quite successful, although years later now post Cambridge Analytica, we're seeing fake news and, and scandal around it. So maybe it's kind of run its course and we're seeing the other side of that. But there's, uh, I think Andreessen and Horowitz are pointing to, well, it worked for the internet. We must first do no harm. Uh, there's, they're sort of saying, well, this is like the internet. Don't do harm to it. We're worried that you're killing it. We're worried about international competition. Do you think they, they may have a point, especially now we're more in a, of a global world here? It's not just uh, one country dominates like it was maybe 20 years ago. Now I know I'll be accused of being a state of shill and that's totally fine, but uh, these things
1: are financial instruments uh, and the networks that they are are operating on top of are arguably financial market infrastructure. And there's a whole set of regulations around those for reasons for, for, after the past Because decades. reasons. <laughs> because we, I mean, like, we've had decades of, of, of examples of why you, these things should be regulated. And so for them to want a hands-off approach is very self-serving because they, they want a hands-off approach because they bought things that probably are, for example, unregistered securities or uh, that will be operating networks that may be payment service providers. They, 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 depending on the jurisdiction, they could be regulated different ways. So I, I, we understand why they have the incentive. To want to get regulators to have a hands-off approach, but I think it's self-serving, and it's uh, in some cases
0: it could lead to systemic issues if these things become very, very large. It's interesting that the bank lobby is not an insubstantial lobby in the U.S. as well, but the financial services world is used to engaging with regulators and policymakers in in quite a different way. And you see this, um, you know, kind of happening in forums, and you see some of it gets published, some of it not arguably, there are ways that that could be improved. I would say that, you know, that's not not whiter than white either. Uh, But actually, you do have this East Coast, West Coast thing of like the world of financial services versus the world of tech lobbying. And it's going to be interesting to see how this one plays out. The next story comes from CryptoSlate. Backed prepares to launch their Bitcoin futures contract. So uh, physically settled futures contracts will be the first of their kind. And apparently they are set to launch on September the 23rd, 2019. Um, Trading hours will be between 8am and 6pm Eastern Daytime uh, with a daily settlement window between 4.58pm and 5pm. Contract size will be equivalent to 1 Bitcoin with a maximum price fluctuation of $2.50 per Bitcoin, or $2.50 per contract. And a block trade may be executed at $0.01 per Bitcoin. Interesting that BACT has been sort of, uh, people have been questioning, will this thing ever get to market? Will it take years to come? Famously, of course, ICE, the, the company that owns the New York Stock Exchange, are also behind BACT. There was a big ballyhoo about its launch. Um, where do you stand on BACT? This seems, this seems real. So uh, I, I think I would say, <laughs> to, to
1: parrot my old uh, talking points, this is just another intermediary in a, in a system that was supposed to be disintermediated. Um, I'm not saying that BACT is bad or evil or it's going to cause calamity, but I just find it very contradictory to the ethos of this anarchic world. Again, I don't own any of these coins. I'm not here to show you anything but PTK Classic mm-hmm. <laughs> or PTK Chloe's vision, as my daughter would say. Um, but the uh, if, if, if if BACT exists, then... Um, any of the things that intermediary, intermediization takes place, uh, we've seen for decades or centuries really, um, could come into effect. In, in fact, how the influence of, for example, a protocol could be designed or not designed or upgrades or side grades. So all the debates around, for example, block sizes, uh, you'll have potential undo or do influence on on what happens with these different uh, protocols. So uh, again, we could sit here and argue about what side grades or upgrades should take place, but now you have an intermediary with a lot of heft that could potentially do even more.
0: I guess it comes back to, do you believe that the value of Bitcoin was around removing intermediaries? If you do believe that, then this kind of shouldn't be exciting to you. Uh, However, a lot of the people that would claim to believe that may be excited by this. The flip side of that is, other, other utilities or values to a new type of asset class and somebody supporting that as an experiment is is pretty interesting nonetheless. And seeing, uh, what do you think it, it says about institutional players taking Bitcoin seriously as a tradable asset? Is is there something there or are they experimenting to it? Because it's an expensive experiment at nearly $100 million um, that they've invested in this thing.
1: Yeah, I think my old, old colleague, uh, Todd McDonald, told me best. He's like, Tim, uh, banks will trade if things are worth trading so yeah. uh, again I'm, that's not to say that that's not an endorsement of anything but uh, if if banks find that there's or uh, institutions find that there's something to trade that has some value for them um, some margin then I, I, I guess it makes sense for them from a balance
0: and Bitcoin continues to creep into legitimacy, uh, but in so doing, it starts to look a lot less like its original vision and a lot more like an asset class uh, that people want to buy, sell and trade that looks a lot like digital gold. And this is, this is something that we're seeing as a narrative start to emerge. Of course, this is a soft launch. It won't be available um, to mass market. Do you expect to see this kind of just sail through and become a, a mass market thing in some point? I, I could only speculate and would be a good person to do that on your show would be
1: named Karen Murray mm. so he's a local guy as well and he's uh, happy to I, again
0: I'm, I come on the show to tell you people that you should, uh, you should yeah, be on your like, show
1: you can do that when we're
0: not recording that's <laughs> cool um All right, next story comes from Decrypt.co. Apparently, maximalists can't meme, Tim. Um, This link actually came out in late August. um, But actually, this was about a blog post from uh, Ben Munster, who long-form discusses the great meme war and the crypto community on social media and other platforms. So it's off the back of, um, apparently, some maximalists look to reshuffle the feathers of the block CEO, uh, Mike Dudas. Give us the too-long-didn't-read on this one, Tim.
1: Yeah, so if you guys aren't familiar, there's a there's a group of hardcore, they call themselves Tox, Toxic Maximalists. They were that with a badge of pride uh, that gave a... And what's a
0: maximalist for the unfamiliar? Uh,
1: basically anything but my coin is, is junk. So yeah. in this case, Bitcoin maximalists are anything that's not Bitcoin is junk or scam or mm-hmm. you know, fraud or something like that. So uh, they, they use other languages that I will not use on this radio show. But uh, the uh, <coughs> this this particular presentation that was done in Dallas, I believe three weeks ago, four weeks ago, Uh, by uh, a group of people from the Satoshi Nokomoto Institute. So it was was a bunch of young guys that um, got in early and now are are pushing their, I guess, their agenda that the only thing that's good is is Bitcoin. Um, And the whole talk that they did was explaining how the best way to to push this uh, agenda is through memes and the different ways you could push these memes on social media. Anyways, it was was very... um, uh, I hate saying naval ape gazing, but it was like, okay, whatever, dude. You're just you're saying these things, and then literally within a day, they were being made fun of, and then they complained that they were being made fun of on social media, mm-hmm. and then Mike Dudis, uh, who uh, is the founder of a, a periodical called the the Block, he I do not want to say he defended, but he pointed out, hey, you know, uh, we we brought some people uh, to, or he allowed a person to attend an event who was apparently making fun of some of these guys and ended up getting, um, Lynched for, by by not having uh, the the blacklisted or whitelisted approved you know people who you're allowed to bring to events. It became it, it, it became very muddled, very cannibalistic, uh, and, and it's uh, very tribal. Uh, it, we see this time and time again in, in these Twitter debates around cryptocurrencies. But yeah, this this article went through showed some of the the ironic and contradictory uh, views of the, these people that were trying to defend the Satoshi Nakamoto guys, and then uh, I guess think it was Joshua Davis was. The, the the culprit on the other side.
0: So what's weird is how much sentiment can impact price in the world of crypto and thinly traded assets can move very, very quickly. So actually using uh, kind of galvanizing a community, organizing a community, and moving it in a particular direction can actually be another form of market manipulation if you're not very careful, or it can be a form of uh, intimidation or, or something else. Um, and we've seen uh, you know, the social media platforms, especially Twitter, come under a lot of pressure from that more broadly. But actually, if we're looking at these asset classes creeping towards legitimacy, per the backstory with institutions starting to come into it. This stuff has to be taken seriously. This is not um, just meme wars on the internet as it sounds. This is everything from you know, uh, Cambridge Analytica and some of the top news stories of our day. So I think people poo-poo this stuff too easily and don't take it seriously enough quite often. And with that, it's time for a quick shill. Alrighty, Uh, do you have any plans on the 23rd, 24th of October? Uh, If you don't, please do join 11FS at CordaCon 2019 in London, one of the top blockchain events in the world, hosted, of course, by our good friends at R3. Uh, CordaCon is their once-a-year event, brings more than 800 blockchain leaders and technologists uh, from various industries around the world together for two days of interactive sessions, use case presentations, tech talks, nerdery, and, of course, Todd McDonald. Um, (laughs) Dev Day, hosted on day one, will focus on Anything from blockchain basics and developer tooling to advanced concepts. And biz day on day two will feature industry leaders who will take on in-depth look at major initiatives and key trends. Um, plan to join dev day, biz day, or both if you're a day walker. Um, you can you can walk in both days. Um, did I mention registration is? F-R-E-E, free. Sign up now, but space is limited. I hear the guys have a few more spaces, but not many. Uh, Head over to r3.com forward slash corticon for more info. See you there. All right, on with the show. The next story comes from The Telegraph, um, the famous broadsheet in the United Kingdom. Um, Digital currency can help meet new financial challenges. Uh, This is really about the uh, People's Bank of China announcement that it will launch uh, a digital currency. And it shows in principle that the Chinese government supports some form of technological development towards digital currencies um, or central bank digital currency. Um, As a new type of legal negotiable instrument, a digital currency signifies the upgrading of existing legal tender, an extension of uh, the yuan, into cyberspace. Digital legal tender, they say, will promote China's financial market construction to a great extent and help uh, experts make thorough analysis of the currencies using big data. Interesting that we've also seen around this, Tim, a number of articles about sovereignty over currency and a lot of fear, um, I think, coming from the PBOC on the back of the Libra announcement that that Libra was dollarization of the world by stealth. Interesting to view this through different lenses. How do you view the, the um, PBOC's kind of comments around digital currency? And of course, they're talking digital currency. They're not mentioning blockchain or DLT. Absolutely, yeah. So uh,
1: my, uh, my contacts in some of the, the banks that are supposedly involved in some of this in China have told me that there is no blockchain. It's very similar to something like CLS. It's not CLS, but it'd be uh, a centralized uh, a point of trust, effectively.
0: Yeah. Um, so it, it would look more like the Bank of England's real-time gross settlement upgrade, but with a digital token. Or? Yeah. The,
1: unfortunately, there's just so much speculation that I really couldn't even say. You I have mean, people talk about different layers, and, and, and until it comes out, until you have like some kind of white paper, all we could do is I, I think fairly uh, just <laughs> just say that they're, they're, they don't want to be left out. Whatever that might be being left out, mm. um, but. I, I honestly don't think that they, they should fear Libra unless there's something I'm missing. Libra hasn't launched. It may not be launched in every jurisdiction. Uh, China has the ability to prevent it from being launched in, in China, mm. so like or the Chinese government. So like for them to say that they're concerned, it'd be interesting to know exactly what existential problems that they have uh, that they, they couldn't handle themselves in that part of the world.
0: And I think um, we have seen... Uh, that Japan's looked at Jcoin and, and it's looked at uh, how can you have sort of this example of digital cash that looks and feels a lot more like you would see from airtime providers in, in sub-Saharan Africa. The idea of that um, central bank digital currency that looks and feels like cash is one that is being trialed and tested in, in a number of markets around the world, but isn't blockchain, isn't DLT. But actually to the user, if it functions like cash and it works, then sort of who cares what the tech is behind it? It's still interesting. Um, And I guess uh, the fact here is if you're in a uh, bank and you're heading into Cybos coming up uh, 23rd through 25th of September this I imagine will be a pretty big discussion point because um RMB clearing for the major banks is is a huge part of their activity for global corporates China remains a massive part of the global supply chain uh, and let's not forget about the global trade tensions that are, that um, are kind of there there's in not the global background. trade tensions what are you talking about you know uh, you might have everyone's f- very happy right now there's, there's some tweets you should look it up it's <laughs> there's kind of big stuff going on in the world of global trade and actually this this year's Cybos is going to be really interesting. So I wonder if this digital currency play is in part an attempt to understand how uh, China could separate itself from from the dollarization and the dollarized world that that, that it finds itself in. Alrighty. Next story comes from Medium, and this is about Binance. Uh, This is them saying what to expect from Binance in the U.S. They're expected to launch in the next few weeks. Um, They're doing KYC, Know Your Customers, um, which will be required for trading on Binance U.S. Setting up a new account will require a valid government ID, driver's license or passport, and social security number to register for the Binance U.S. marketplace available in most U.S. states. Um, I think this isn't a giant surprise, Tim, that Binance is coming to the U.S. Do you think... uh, they'll be welcomed with open arms and they'll have no problems? Do you think they'll get mass user adoption? Do you think loads of people will go through this or are they just going to be using the non-KYC kind of internationalized version that most people can get access to anyway?
1: So, uh, yeah, I think it's the latter. I, I'm, I'm going to cheat by saying I actually know somebody involved in this project uh, and they have spent a lot of time um, talking to regulators to try and get the the least controversial coins, assets, tokens, whatever you want to call these things. And it it looks like they're just going to emulate some of the ex- existing exchanges here that have received approval. So it's kind of just copying that, make, trying to get their name brand here and establish like a beachhead. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can only speculate beyond that.
0: It's interesting that uh, you could, f- from behind a VPN, get yourself to Binance with, and take your Bitcoin there and trade. They're going after, I guess, a broader market here as an on-ramp. What do you think Binance's strategy is there? They don't want the... My understanding is they do not want to
1: have... Uh, to be left out. They want to <clears throat> not allow uh, these other exchanges that have been in the US uh, to just have 100% market share. They, they, they basically
0: like to have- All the things. Yes. Binance wants all the things. And in other Binance-related news, they've also launched a dollar-backed stablecoin. That uh, story comes from Coindesk. Um, Binance USD, or buzzed, um, BUSD has received the blessing of the New York Department of Financial Services. Apparently, um, they're launching a partnership with the Paxos Trust Company. We haven't heard a lot from Paxos for a little while. Um, do you know anything about this one, Tim? Um, so, Paxos uh, actually just announced about a week ago that they're getting
1: that their gold settlement project is actually launched. I'm not sure if you saw that. No, uh, I did It was very like if you if, if listeners have been uh, on this show, you'll you hear the gold use case come up periodically, mm-hmm. and Paxos, about four years ago, I remember seeing and hearing one of the pitches early on, uh, before it was called Paxos, it was actually ItBit, and they had to yeah. spin-out unit called Paxos, uh, and Gold was going to be one of the use cases. So it's taken about four years for that to get off. And so in the meantime, they'd actually set up this trust entity uh, and set up their own... Um, a commercial bank-backed uh, "quote-unquote" stablecoin. So I believe they're just trying to use, reuse the infrastructure they have uh, to, to help out those entities they think are,
0: are are useful enough. In in this case, I can only speculate about how they view Binance. Interesting stuff. Um, they, yeah, they're, they're a veteran, as you say. Um, they're they're pretty large. Uh, Binance um, going into the U.S. and now launching a stablecoin. Do you think they're going to run into more regulatory obstacles? It seems like that's not the case, but they've always been seen, at least this is how I've perceived them, Um, because they're international in nature, they don't have a clear home or jurisdiction as sort of outside of um, a given jurisdiction. But that seems to be changing. They're setting up legal entities in given places. They seem to be following the rules and and not struggling. But then uh, we'll see. I would say that we, we
1: should do a separation, a nuance there between Binance U.S. and Binance itself, International. Uh, Binance International, we could have a whole show about what, I think, the things that they're doing wrong. Oh, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> but, but we don't have time for that. But I, but I guess that's why it makes it strange, because surely the funding for Binance U.S. is coming from Binance International. And if you were to follow the money, you would say that the ultimate beneficial owner is therefore somebody that you'd have questions and concerns about from a management team. Uh, like... It's interesting to see that maybe the regulator, I would speculate, is looking at, well, actually, if you come inside the fence, then at least we can understand what's going on, at least we can start to see the data. And there's a benevolent honeypot thing going on here from the regulators, which is wherever somebody like a Binance is making attempts to comply, they're actually welcoming that and looking to collaborate with them.
1: And this actually turn, uh, touches with your next story but, uh, with, with NetKey, but before we get to there, the, uh, the Chainalysis, I believe, is the, the data analytics provider for Binance, and yeah. Chainalysis is out there looking for bad guys or, or illicit activity. So maybe, again, I can only speculate why New York DFS uh, approved this, but perhaps they assuage them by saying, hey, look, we'll handle our AML stuff by by doing end-to-end uh, data analytics.
0: And, and Binance is arguably the biggest, if not the one of the top two, depending on the day, uh, exchanges by volume has a massive view of, of the crypto ecosystem. So if you're, a, if you're in law enforcement and you want somebody to collaborate with you in terms of a data set and knowing what the last mile looks like, they are uniquely placed to be able to at least hand over an email address and or help, help with those investigations. So I imagine law enforcement, that's a, that's a really interesting point. We would find that valuable. Speaking of which, you did foreshadow my next story. Um, comes from Coindesk. NetKey have retooled their digital ID service for FATF's new crypto travel rule. Um, So cryptocurrency firms need to meet um, tough new, well, tough international standards for combating money laundering. Um, NetKey have added two features. Uh, The first one is the ability to break down certificates of a user's identity into smaller pieces of personally identifiable information, PII. Um, And then the ability for senders and receivers of money to request PII from each other. Really, really interesting concept. Um, What are your thoughts on this one, Tim? Yeah, the whole travel rule issue... Um, yeah, what for, is the travel rule? Let's start that. Uh, the, the, the most
1: generi- general way of describing it is uh, the, both sides of the transactions are known. Yeah, and with cryptocurrencies, especially these anarchic coins like Bitcoin, they're designed like Satoshi wasn't. Trying, <laughs> Satoshi intentionally wasn't designing a system in which you could uh, identify, easily identify yeah. parties on either side. Um, so the the controversy around the travel rule as imple- trying to implement it with uh, with the cryptocurrency world has been going on at least since twenty thirteen when I believe there was a, s- a couple different articles, a couple closed hearings. Uh, I think Circle Coinbase were uh, even out then uh, back then saying, "Oh, this would." be impossible to implement. Well, uh, again, I'm not saying it's it's going to be easy. But if, if regular financial institutions have to do it, why should cryptocurrency companies not have to do it too? So obviously, there's a lot of pushback saying we should deserve a carve out or some kind of exemption. But at the end of the day, if you're transferring value, or at least something that people consider value, uh, why should you not have to identify both sides of the parties?
0: Well, I, and I guess uh, if... In theory, both you and I could go create, um, we could take open source software and we could run our own Bitcoin node and we could transact privately on Bitcoin and nobody would know it was us. And there would be nothing to stop us um, sending money from that node to. But that's that just bitcoins. So you're not sending actual like cash. Correct. Um, so uh, and there's no there's no dollar side of it. There's no there's no fiat side of it at all. Uh, Exactly. And it's only when it hits fiat that those rules start to to come into place. But if I were to take some US dollars and I was to go to a Coinbase or Binance or wherever, and then I would send it to you and you were then to take those Bitcoin and take them out and get dollars, then the law already states this isn't a change to the law Uh, in most countries. It's an enforcement of existing laws. This is an enforcement of existing laws. We have to know who those parties are, especially if it's above $1,000. Below $1,000... We don't necessarily always need to know because it becomes more cash-like and and below a de minimis value. Um, But this is really surprisingly more challenging in Bitcoin because it becomes like a a last mile problem. And it becomes a uh, who's responsible for all of Bitcoin problem because... I as Coinbase could be responsible for my bit of my clients you as Binance could be responsible for yours but what happens if one end of the transaction isn't with either of us or what happens if there were three or four hops to get to that transaction, who's responsible and so that slippery slope argument has been one where there's been quite a bit of like actually we need some help here from law enforcement or some intermediary or some others we, we do a lot of work at Global Digital Finance with uh, uh, the AML working group on exactly this so if you're listening and you interested, get in touch with um, hello at gdf.io. Because I think this is a super interesting area where there are challenges that you wouldn't have seen in the world of traditional finance. In the world of traditional finance, there's always a bank on the other end somewhere. And you can always go talk to that bank. With this, there are these gray areas, and we need a way as an industry to collaborate and figure out good answers. One last thing on this,
1: and it ties back into the point we, we were talking about it with Bact. like The fact that you have these intermediaries, it could be called upon to to provide this information. I mean, the other side of that argument is, well, doesn't that defeat the purpose of having one of these blockchains in the first place? Like If you you have an intermediary that's, 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 that's identifying and identifying all parties or trying to identify all parties, then what's the point of paying for a proof of work network?
0: Yeah, it starts to look a bit silly, doesn't it? Um, I think, though, the interesting question for me remains, what are the consumer problems that need solving? And let's start on that side of the equation. And there are some interesting ones around uh, we're heading into a bear market. There aren't, uh, there aren't many uh, assets that have yield. Um, people are looking for uh, different types of asset classes. And, and, and that sort of digital gold story still sort of stands up a little bit. Um, but the, the peer-to-peer decentralized cash is, is a bit harder to make an argument for I think these days alright stories we didn't have time to cover uh, first one comes from Finance Magnate DAP Radar secured 2.3 million dollars in a NASPERS led seed round uh, CoinDesk Ethereum to test their Istanbul hard fork in early October watch this one closely um, because uh, if Ethereum can upgrade itself it's back gonna, to Constantinople Yeah, <laughs> uh, yes there's uh, make I- Istanbul Constantinople again some great memes out there uh, the Ethereum guys can meme um, Cointelegraph, LG are developing a blockchain phone in response to Samsung because uh, they've got to have one too. RIA.biz, uh, Schwab dismisses cryptocurrencies as speculation. And from Coingeek, Line wins crypto exchange license from Japan's FSA. Interesting one. Uh, Japan is definitely really, really out there in terms of the regulatory environment and one to watch if you're a regulatory nerd. All right, now it's time for Twitter of the Week.
2: Tweet, tweet, tweet,
0: tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. This week's Tweet of the Week comes from Whale Alert, at whale underscore alert. 94,504 Bitcoin, also nearly a billion dollars, have transferred from unknown wallet to unknown wallet. Wow. Um, is this Craig Wright getting ready to play <laughs> pay his lawsuit? <laughs> Allegedly, it's uh, we're,
1: we're trying to prop up the PTK price. Don't, don't tell anyone that. Don't that's a big transaction. Well, you know, Colin's been holding it back, you know, uh, he's yeah. s- saving for a rainy day for his daughter's tuition. So,
0: Colin G Platt, uh, up to no good. There's some, some big actors out there still, and we've seen that, um, you know, some of the top wallets in the world still hold a, a massive concentration of the Bitcoin. Um, is, is that a risk if somebody you know, in retail is, is in the space?
1: Well, uh, the one, one set of conversations I saw on social media that generated a lot of uh, Uh, engagement was if you have a billion dollars in one transaction and the transaction fee was like $700 you know how much would miners be willing to spend to reverse that so they could kind of double spend there's conversations about attacks and um, you know for example miners when they mine a block they don't actually are unable to spend that for about 100 blocks so the question about how secure moving large value it, that's, that's one of the pitches. But in, in practice, nobody's actually been moving lo- like significantly large value. The question is, if that becomes more
0: commonplace, will savvy attackers figure ways to game the system? Will we see uh, lots of billion-dollar transactions, especially now is out there? Will we see them as contracts or will we see them as uh, underlying transactions? Alrighty. righty. Uh, well, before we let you go, I had a great chat with Oriol Ohayan, who's the CEO of Zengo. Welcome to Blockchain Insider. I'm Simon Taylor, and it's my pleasure to be joined by Oriel O'Hayan. Have I said your name right?
2: That's kind of right. Hello there.
0: <laughs> uh, you're the CEO at Zengo. Uh, how are you doing today? Doing extremely, extremely well. Thank you. Uh, do you want to just want to tell our listeners what Zengo is?
2: So uh Zango is a new kind of crypto wallet and uh I'm sure uh, your listeners by now uh, are already familiar with what a crypto wallet is so I, I don't have to explain but just to set the context it's a traditionally either a program or a piece of hardware uh on that you're using for uh, for storing and uh managing your uh, crypto funds crypto coins crypto tokens uh, all coins of digital assets and uh Zango is a mobile uh, mobile wallet that we launched about a month and a half ago and it's based on a different set of properties which are based on extreme simplicity and security. And I'm sure you have questions, we're going to talk about what's unique about it, but basically that's what it is.
0: Absolutely. I think that's, uh, that's exactly where I'm curious because there's a lot of wallets out there. I mean, um, some very popular ones, some hardware-based wallets. Uh, you know, uh, Crypto wallets have been around for quite some time. Um, but you talk about being keyless. So um, do you want to explain a little bit about how your wallet works and how it's different?
2: Yeah. So traditionally wallets have a public and a private key. And when you onboard, and I'm referring to self-custodial wallets. So you wallets where the user is in control versus typically an exchange where they uh, basically host the funds for you. And so uh, what this does is uh, a wallet will ask the user to be in charge of his private key. And uh, that will materialize by an onboarding where you typically have to write down a set of words. You have to keep them safe somewhere so you can restore uh, your wallet in another device. And then you have to make sure that no one has access to it except you. So that's a typical experience for a wallet. And it can be a software or hardware, but basically that's about the same same thing. And what we've launched is the first wallet that does not rely on a private key. We call that keyless security. Um, it's using a different type of um, cryptographic paradigm based on multi-party computation and I can answer more what it is but the basic principle is at no moment a private key is generated not at the moment of the creation of the wallet and not at the moment of the signature of a transaction and that enables us to build what we call the keyless experience meaning a very uh, seamless experience where the user doesn't have to write down a password, doesn't have to memorize anything actually doesn't have to uh, use any sort of password, and he has access to his wallet backed up in seconds. So it's the simplest way to have a non-custodial wallet built uh, to date.
0: So it's a non-custodial wallet that's easier to use, but is, is it still secure? And tell us more about how these signatures work.
2: So uh, the uh, the security of, of a wallet traditionally depends on you being able to protect your private key. Uh, so if, for example, someone else, Gets it, or you have made an, a human error, which happens very often on either writing the 24 words, 12 words, or stored it in a place that is not safe. Then you will lose, uh, you will lose your funds, and it, there is no "I forgot my password" button. Right, Different. loss of funds is irreversible. Uh, in our case, uh, there is no s- this single point of failure, which is depending on a single secret. Uh, the structure, the, the structure of the wallet, and the security is multifactored meaning that there is a a number of things that you need to uh, have and own and be so that the wallet is uh, only accessible by you. So in our case, the only thing that we require is that you have an email address, an email address, Um, and that's the only thing that you need to uh, remember. Uh, We don't ask you for a password because we send you a magic link. Once you've confirmed it, you just uh, confirm your device biometrics. And after you've done that, the last step is that we actually do do a 3D scan of your uh, of your face uh, which is measuring a set of tens of parameters it is not face id that you find on iPhones it's a different technology and that's it your wallet is set up and backed up and that means that only you can access your your wallet and so if an attacker wants to steal it unlike traditional wallet where a password is enough to get your funds uh, the, the, the 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 difficulty to to access your funds is actually a lot more uh, a lot more difficult much 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 higher uh, in terms of the
0: so, if I had an account compromise, like um, somebody had compromised my email address or somebody had compromised my, um, maybe they've done a SIM swap attack and they've compromised my phone, um, there's still no way that they could um, kind of uh, reset my access to my wallet or, or take over my account.
2: Correct. Uh, so, sim, SIM swapping, SIM jacking, whatever you call it, it's very popular, sadly, lately. Uh, meaning someone who's going to reverse engineer uh, the customer support of a mobile uh, operator, going to get your SIM card, and from them, uh, get control of your second-factor authentication, your email system, and from them, every single password that you own and access to exchanges and everything, and then we steal your funds. Here, if your email is compromised, uh, your funds are still secure because it's based on who you are and not what you know or what you set up. And so the, the, uh, the you know, there's no 100% security, but the security is um, much, much better than a traditional uh, wallet, but still with a user experience that is extremely simple, because it does not require you to have any knowledge in security or to remember anything complicated. It's
0: phenomenal. Um, I think then that sounds like a challenge. That sounds like somebody's going to want to break it. Um, have you had anybody try and break it? Has anybody ever been able to to break into your wallet?
2: Uh, well, actually, we have actually pushed our luck a little bit because, uh, you know, we, when we came out, uh, we, because we came in with such a new paradigm and new recipe, people were skeptical. So instead of trying to explain and explain over and over, what we did is we have organized a challenge for 30 days where we put the Bitcoin in a wallet where we gave away the email address and the iCloud account and even a high definition picture of my face and, uh, you know, tens of people, like sub-hundred sub people have tried to break in and no one has managed to move the, the Bitcoin. Uh, we will soon have a new edition with actually a lot more funds, uh, but we had to start somewhere. And so until now, no one has managed to to break. No one has actually lost their funds, unlike traditional mobile wallets or other wallets. Hundred percent of our users have their funds backed up because the process is just seamless and immediate. So there is no situations where people deposit funds and are not back up and are able to recover. So it's by far, by far better than traditional wallets.
0: It'd be really interesting to build like a crypto X Prize and uh, make your wallet one of the things that people win the X Prize if they manage to break into and, and, and a few other things. But that's a, that's a conversation for another day. Um, listen, stepping out, um, you guys actually got a shout out from uh, David Marcus from Facebook and, and of Libra fame, um, you know, kind of shouting out what you guys have done with, with the wallet. Um, can you tell me about what the reaction's been like since then?
2: So w- w- what happened just for the context we launched about a month and a half ago with support of uh, Bitcoin Ethereum and we just launched a support for Binance chain and uh, about 2 3 weeks ago uh, Facebook announced this new project called Libra and put out the library for um for uh for uh, for, for Libra and so we are we have immediately uh, looked looked at it and because of the technology that we have uh, and the capacity to add very quickly any new blockchain uh, we thought it would be interesting to build the first non-custodial wallet for Libra. Uh, because as you know, the only wallet that is officially supposed to support Libra is a custodial wallet by, uh, by Libra called Calibra. And we wanted to see if it was actually possible to build something that is non-custodial. And so we did. And we, uh, we released it and, uh, it's on open source. Uh, it's available in our library on GitHub, on uh, the name case and networks. And the reaction was actually <laughs> astounding. We did not expect so much, uh, so much uh, great feedback. It was, I think it was the manifestation of two things. The fact that it was indeed possible to build something that is non-custodial for Libra, which is going to be extremely important for the development of that project. But also the fact that the uh, technology approach that we have enabled us to uh, deliver so quickly on a new project that has been only two weeks old at least uh, in, uh, in in live. And so uh, we did have indeed a lot of reaction from from David Marcus, from Kevin Wills, from uh, and many other people actually Libra, but also from the community at large. And uh, it sounds like uh, this is something that we're going to double down in. We very much like this project with all its, in, its imperfections. And we, we are going to actually bake in uh, Libra testnet into Zango and it's going to be available in the next couple of weeks. Well, oh, it sounds like exciting
0: times for you guys, lots coming up. Um, if people like the sound of a, of a wallet that nobody's ever hacked um, and that uses a very different approach, you know, the keyless approach to uh, kind of managing their crypto, where do they go to find out more?
2: Well, you just, uh, it's very, diff- very easy, not very difficult to find us, you just go to, uh, to, uh, to your favorite browser, you go to zango.com, so no fucking termination, it's easy to remember. Uh, on twitter we are at zango and in the app store we are zango and you find us there we'll be on android very soon so for now we're just on ios
0: awesome or well, thank you so much for being on blockchain insider this week
2: you're welcome thank you so much for having me
0: Thank you so much, Ariel. Uh, that wraps up this week's show. Just to remind you all listeners, this podcast is made by 11FS. We're a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services. We also create truly digital propositions working with banks, big techs, and all kinds of companies who want to get the most out of where finance meets those crazy people called customers. Uh, check them out. They're really cool. Uh, want to hear more and Insider every single Thursday? The subscribe button's just there. Go ahead and smash that uh, subscribe button. And if you're already subscribed, please, please throw us a review. Uh, Tim, where can people find out more about you? You Find me on Twitter at OfNumbers. You can
1: find my website, OfNumbers.com, and you can visit my employer, clearmatics.com.
0: You got those URLs oils down like a pat. That's, uh, that, there's a pro right there. You can find me at sytaylor on Twitter, or you can just email me directly, simon at 11fs.com. If there's anything we've talked about, uh, you want to have a chat about. Big thank you, as always, to our amazing production team here at 11FS, producers Laura, Petra, and Hannah, and, of course, Alex, our superstar editor. Thank you for listening. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye for now.